The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Today is Wednesday, November 27, 2019. On this day in 1934, notorious American bank robber Babyface Nelson was killed in a shootout with the FBI. But not before he'd killed more FBI agents than any other criminal in history. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Charlie Worrell, host of Crime Lines and Impact Statement. On Crime Lines, Charlie explores different true crime events, combining narrative details with historical context. She's here to discuss some of the historical aspects of Babyface Nelson's death, while I'll cover the narrative. Welcome, Charlie. Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to delve into the story of Babyface Nelson. Normally, I cover both the story and the context. So I'm glad to share the work with you, Vanessa. Me too. Now let's go back to November 27th, 1934 at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin around 2 p.m. The wind whipping off the surface of the water gave the air a brisk November chill. But the sun glared on the front windshield. It was a clear, beautiful day, maybe one of the last before winter set in. Babyface Nelson hoped he would find refuge here at Lake Geneva, as he had in winters past. Somewhere quiet to hole up with John Chase, his partner in crime, and Helen, his wife, and additional partner in crime. He needed that respite more than ever. As of a month ago, he was the FBI's public enemy number one. The trio's boxy Ford V8, stolen of course, slowed down as it approached the Hermanson house. Two men in long, dark coats stood outside, but they could barely see into the huge car. The sunshine made its glass panes into a mirror. All they could make out was a young woman in the passenger seat, wrapped up in a fur coat. But the voice that emerged from inside the car was a man's. He asked if Hermanson was home. The men in black coats said no. Then, without further ado, he said a hasty thank you and muttered something indistinct as he swung the V8 around. Those weren't friends. They were G-men. Lake Geneva, it seemed, wasn't going to be a refuge after all. Babyface stepped on the gas. 
But as the car turned down the driveway, the light shifted. Finally, the FBI men could see the Ford's driver. They froze, processing that childlike face under its sunglasses and flat cap. It was their target, right under their noses. Then they turned to each other and started cursing, scrambling to take down the license plate number before the car disappeared from view. It didn't take the FBI long to mobilize men out to Lake Geneva and the surrounding towns and highways, but it took Babyface even less time to start zooming towards the Wisconsin-Illinois border towards Chicago. Babyface, laughing, planted a kiss on Helen's cheek as he drove. Then he threw a grinning glance back at Chase, waiting in the back seat. Babyface nodded with approval when he saw his partner had a gun at the ready. He was cocky enough to be pleased about his smooth little getaway, but he was smart enough to know that the feds would follow, and soon. They had put a reward on his head back in June. They had to be mortified that they let him slip away when he was right within their grasp. If he ran into them again, there'd be a shootout. But he and Chase would be ready. Meanwhile, FBI agents William Ryan and Thomas McDade cruised north on Highway 12, now Highway 14. It was three o'clock, and the glare of the sun was brighter than ever. But this time, the government men knew what they were looking for, a big, boxy old Ford V8. They had the license plate number pinned to the sun visor. And then they spotted it. Both agents yelled out the last three numbers of Babyface's plates at the same time. But they were driving north, and he was driving south. A grassy median split the road in two. McDade didn't hesitate. He swung the car around into the median and zipped onto the other side of the highway, his tires skidding across dirt and grass. Babyface knew they'd been made as soon as he saw that black car pull its dramatic U-turn. With a grin, he pulled one himself. Flying across the median into the northbound lane, the G-men had just exited. This dance continued. The cars flew back and forth across the median, chasing one another in a whir of concrete, metal, and flying chunks of turf. The agents in their car gritted their teeth. Babyface in his was grinning. Bullets started to fly, glass shattered. Helen crouched in the front seat, wrapped in her fur. But the game couldn't go on forever. After a bullet hit the car's radiator, Babyface's engine started to fail. His car fell back, and just as he veered off Highway 12 onto a dirt road in the town of Barrington, Illinois, it ground to a full stop. That's when a second FBI car arrived. Coming up, the end of Babyface Nelson's story and some of the context surrounding his dramatic life. 
Now, back to the story. Around 3.15 p.m. on November 27, 1934, 25-year-old Babyface Nelson's car chase with several FBI agents came to an abrupt halt when his car engine died. He pulled into a dirt road off Highway 12 and readied his guns as two FBI men advanced towards him. Charlie Worrell is here to discuss the aftermath of the chase and Babyface Nelson's long-term cultural impact. Thanks, Vanessa. Helen Gillis, Babyface's wife, crouched in a ditch as bullets started to fly. By the end of the fight, Babyface had killed one FBI agent and mortally wounded the other. Babyface was now responsible for the deaths of three FBI agents, more than any other criminal in history. He, along with his partner John Chase and Helen, jumped into the dead agent's car and fled the scene. But the success of the shootout was far from absolute. A bullet wound to Babyface's abdomen killed him at 7.35 that night. Babyface's death, however, was far from the end of his story. The fact that his small size and childlike face so perfectly belied his ruthless cunning helped make him a fascinating figure across several generations. Babyface Nelson is also remembered for his association with a certain Robin Hood-esque class of criminals that included John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Bonnie and Clyde. Like his contemporaries, Babyface spent the 1930s stealing from the rich. He went after banks and the jewels of politicians' wives, not John Doe's grocery money. Thanks to that, as well as the dashing showmanship with which he and his fellow bank robbers pulled off their crimes, to many Americans, he was more hero than criminal. This positive perception of criminals like Babyface persisted in the face of their very real, ruthless violence. And that had a lot to do with the historical context surrounding their exploits. Babyface started his criminal career in the 1920s, but really ramped up his violent action in the 1930s, meaning his exploits coincided perfectly with the Great Depression. In the U.S., the Great Depression began with the stock market crash on October 29, 1929, known as Black Tuesday. What followed were nearly 10 years of desperate poverty for most Americans. In this climate, wealth looked increasingly morally bankrupt. Why should one man's wife wear diamonds while another's didn't have enough money for groceries? The banks, too, got little sympathy from the common man. He'd seen firsthand that the money he left in those vaults wasn't his when the banks collapsed, even if he deposited his paychecks there week after week. The stock market apparently owned the banks, 
And together, those monolithic institutions took huge swaths of middle-class savings down with them on Black Tuesday. 1930s America was disillusioned about the powers that be, about the wealth in the hands of a few, and about the violence the system perpetrated against its starving citizens every day. If babyface Nelson killed a few FBI men in his pursuit of a better life, well, most people didn't blame him. But babyface's name didn't disappear with the Great Depression. His violent, dramatic exploits have been preserved in numerous nonfiction books, as well as a host of fictional portrayals. As recently as 2009, the film Public Enemies, starring Stephen Graham as Babyface and Johnny Depp as Dillinger, retold the story for a new generation of avid fans. Today, the legend of Babyface Nelson remains as large as the youthful man was small. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks again, Charlie, for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. You can find my podcast, Crime Lines and Impact Statement, on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Freddie Beckley, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Nora Battelle, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 